0: I'm Keitel, And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends, too, from the world of professional football and
1: beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kaitel, and joining me in LA, as always, from back in our hometown of London, is my co-host. Hiya, Joe. How's it going, mate?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Kyle. I'm I'm not appreciating uh, the Sporting Lisbon top, obviously, with me being a Spurs fan. That wasn't wasn't
1: the best result for us last night, but there we go. Very funny. Very funny. You know, I I hadn't thought about that. I just just threw it on. Uh, (laughs) uh, Joe and I are both uh, very excited because, as usual, we have a special guest joining us on the podcast today as well. Today's guest managed to play for clubs across every level of the football league, as well as abroad in Scotland and the Netherlands. He also played internationally for Wales, helping them famously reach the semifinals of Euro 2016. And he managed to do all of this before retiring from the professional game at the age of 29. Joe and I are 28, for reference, and both still waiting on our first pro contract. Since hanging up his playing boots, our guest has started his own CBD-based line of fitness products. We welcome Simon Church to United Mates Football Podcast. Simon, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Thanks very much for joining us, and how's it going, mate?
2: Yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, well, good, thanks. Well, good.
1: Lovely. How's the weather uh, over in England? I know on a energy level, uh, given recent events, things have probably been a bit, a bit gloomy. Has, has the weather matched up to that, or is it sunny like it might be out here in L.A.?
2: Not too, not too bad today, is it? It's not too bad. It's hit and miss, like everything in this country. Um, you just don't know what you're going to get
1: there. Absolutely. Speaking of unpredictable things, Joe had referenced the, the Lisbon kit that I've been wearing. And I guess yes. bringing that back to, to Tottenham being unpredictable. Um, yeah, football was cancelled because of the Queen. We're not going to talk about that too much. But despite football <laughs> being cancelled, Spurs still did manage to, to lose 2-0 away at Sporting Lisbon yesterday. So I can't complain too much uh but joe yeah what's going on what's going on with spurs I, at the moment
0: i did see quite a funny um stat that uh spurs were the the first english team or something to lose under the king charles era or something really stupid like that which is quite funny <laughs> but yeah i don't know we were um we were due a loss i think we've been we've had a good start to the season performances haven't been great so you know I, I trust conte to kind of you know go back to the drawing board maybe change a couple of things here and there but it's, it's okay we're gonna be all right i'm pretty um, confident of that but um Simon as um as Kai said we're um, we're delighted to be joined by you and um whenever we have a guest on this podcast we always start with an icebreaker question just a kind of silly question to kind of get things started so sometimes we look into um people's social media accounts but today we're actually it's just it's just related to your name Simon there's obviously um uh, there's a famous game called Simon Says I think we've all played it when we were a child Um, at some point or other but our question for you and we'll give you some time to think about it is what is your favorite party game so I'm gonna go to um Kai first who will answer it Simon can have a little think um as Kai answers but yeah Kai what's your what's your favorite party game Kai
1: my gut is telling me to go for uh pass the parcel it's just it's a classic and there's a bit of a bit of a playmaker you know passing and whatnot uh, um, so pass the parcel. We'll go with that. How about you, Joe?
0: There was a game at university. This is basically just drinking, to be honest. But it was quite a fun game where that song Roxanne by Police, where you know half the room has to drink every time Roxanne is said, half the other room has to drink every time Red Light is said. Basically, just an excuse to drink. But that was always, um, that was always good fun before a night out. I enjoyed that. But um, Simon, you've had a, you've had a bit, not, not admittedly, lots of time to think. But has any, any party games come to mind?
2: um when we've when we've had like dinner dinner parties in the past cards of humanity i I enjoy a lot um especially after a few drinks uh uno Uh, i i don't think that's really a party game i think that's just the game in general but I, i love uno and the kids love uno as well
1: yeah, a couple, of, a couple of belters there. Cards Against Humanities definitely gets pretty interesting. Very humorous and very kind of, uh, yeah, dark humor, which is always uh, a favorite of mine. Uh, speaking of cards, I guess, Simon, before we jump into um, a, a bit more about your actual uh, career, did you pick up many cards throughout your playing days? Do you know what? I got, yellow, I got sent off twice.
2: Uh, I think I've got a few yellow cards, but the one time I got sent off, um i've got a yellow card while i was warming up um the referee gave away a penalty it was silly and i got right in the linesman ear while, while I was warming up and he ran over and booked me and then i come on and scored the winner um and jumped in the crowd and then got a second yellow so i got sent off so but i missed boxing day game so happy days
1: <laughs> so you got to party as hard as he liked uh, on christmas that that worked out in the end i guess um, but yeah, moving away from, uh, card games and yellow and red cards, um, but sticking with football, whenever we have guests on, we like to kind of, uh, start by getting a flavor for what it was that, um, got them caught up in the world of football, made them fall in love with the beautiful game in the first place. So taking things back to your childhood, Simon, um, what are some memories that you have of playing or watching football or supporting a club, um, that really helped solidify, um, your love for the beautiful game in the first place?
2: Yeah, I think it was just um, just early on, uh, probably probably school, three or three or four, or five, just um, playing with the mates. Um, and as soon as I started kicking a ball, I, I just got obsessed. Um, I started playing. I got scouted at the age of seven for Wickham Wanderers, which was like my local club growing up. Um, it's something that I was just yeah, just obsessed with. I was a really heavy Man United fan. Um, that came from my dad. It's what it is. Um, and yeah, wickham Wanderers was like my local club. So we used to get down there as, as much as possible. And yeah, just got obsessed with it. I just loved the game. I felt like I was, you know, something. It just came naturally. Um, and I just wanted to play it all the time. And the love for that kind of grew and grew and grew uh, until I probably made it professional. where <laughs> It just kind of left quite quickly and turned into kind of the realisation of of what the game is
0: yeah that's interesting I guess yeah like you said when you make that switch from um, a fan or an amateur to a professional you start to view things in a different way but um, going back actually to the time when you were in the academy at Wickham I guess at a very young age it looks like at the age of 14 you made the move to Reading and it looks like it was part of the Nathan Tyson transfer to Wickham is that is that true was it sort of part of a a deal was that is that that sort of something Wikipedia told me what's the is there truth in that there there is truth in
2: that something at the time I wasn't aware of I mean I was only young young, I I don't think my dad at the time knew too much about it It was obviously the politics of football going on but I, I didn't care because I think I can always remember I played my last game for Wiccan Wanderers, um, which was like Colchester away or something like that, 14. And then within my first week or two, I was playing against Arsenal at Highbury uh, as a 14-year-old. And I just knew, you know, this is a big step up. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know the ins and outs of that deal, but I'm glad it was that it was done. And, you know, the step up to Reading was, was a huge boost because... Um, I was able to play with better players against better players, and yeah, just progress my my career when I was younger. From uh,
0: accelerated it pretty pretty well. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it was certainly a step up even at that young age. And I guess Reading geogra- geographically is close to Wickham, but as you said, obviously Wickham was your hometown. Did it was it tricky kind of moving clubs? Like, did you have to move at all, or could you kind of commute from where you were living? Did it actually not affect things too much from that? that kind of perspective? Uh, I think logistically,
2: you know, my dad made a lot of sacrifices to kind of take me there. Um, But yeah, I I think it was just an instant kind of realisation, you know, playing against Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, rather than, you know, Colchester and Swindon and these kind of teams. No disrespect, but um, the step up was, was pretty drastic and, yeah, I just loved it. It's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be playing against, you know, Chelsea, playing at the training grounds, and you know, being around it gives you that buzz, especially as a as a young kid. Well, no, it sounds fantastic, and I'm quickly
0: just going to let my girlfriend on that note. One second.
1: I think while uh, while Joe runs off, I'll commend you for including Spurs in in that group of teams and not lumping them in with Colchester and and whatnot. It was um, close. <laughs> I didn't think about it, but uh, yeah. didn't want Joe to feel left out. No, he's riding the wave at the moment, isn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, his girlfriend's right. just showing off
0: happy days. Yeah, well, she's, yeah, hopefully she will. I've left the door open us, so should be OK. Um, so, obviously, Simon, obviously, as we just said, you know, you made the move to Reading at a young age and things obviously were going well at Reading because between um, 2007 and 2009, you were sent on a number of loan moves to sort of teams in the Football League, I guess, to get your first taste of um, professional football. So, I guess... You, it looks like you went on about four or five loan moves before kind of really breaking into that Reading team. How, um, how important was that period for you? Do you really kind of put that down to really developing your game?
2: Yeah, massively. I think it was so important. I think at the time, uh, I'd just made my Reading debut, but I had, they were in the Premier League and I had, you know, Kevin Doyle, uh, Leroy Lita, Dave Kitson... Longy. I, I had a lot of people in front of me. I was never going to get a chance. And, you know, I went to League One. I went with Crewe. Uh, I went with Yeovil, Leighton Orient, Wickham. All different uh, kind of experiences. For example, Yeovil was struggling in League One. Really old school, really, you know, I had to move out there, the middle of nowhere, and just learn about, you know, really old school kind of football. in The, tra- the dressing room was old school um it was tough I didn't play that much and I had to kind of learn how to cope with that and then going to Leighton Orient I was playing every every week doing really well and off the back of that I got recalled and, and played in the semi-final of the uh, of the playoffs so each experience was a good one I mean I got sent off at, <laughs> at Wickham uh it was in League Two it's my home club went back nice. didn't didn't really have a good time, but I thought it's League Two. I've got going hard and got sent off, which wasn't great. Right. Um, got broke my hand. It was just awful. So, loads of different experiences, but I think having those experiences at eighteen to, to you know, eighteen to nineteen, on top of the Wales under twenty one games, it, it kind of gave me a really, really good base. And I think nowadays, if you're not playing first team football by the age of nineteen. Twenty, you just won't have a chance, or it's it it's near on impossible to kind of build a career for yourself unless you're you know, one off cases that kind of break through a bit later.
1: Yeah, definitely. It seems like you can obviously be in an academy with a really fantastic technical setup, but at the end of the day, unless you get that kind of learning on the job experience playing against men um, who are kind of trying to earn a paycheck um, before you get to, you know, maybe your twenties, you might have missed out. So. Clearly, those loan spells did the the trick. And we're going to focus a little bit more on uh, Reading uh, now. And you broke into the Reading team during the 2009-10 campaign and you managed to score 10 goals in the league that season. Um, What what do you put that success down to, given that, as we were talking about, uh, up until this point, um, the highest level that you played at was was League One. And then suddenly you're kind of scoring goals for fun in the the championship. And you even scored against Liverpool in the FA Cup that year as well. So what, what was it that clicked for you during this spell?
2: I think it was just momentum, and I think momentum in, in football is such a big thing. It's, quite, uh, it's not really spoken about, especially as a striker. Um, I think you have to play games. You have to score goals, and you've got to be confident. And I think um, at the time, I had some bad loan spells, but then on the back end of that, I had a really good loan spell. I was doing really well with the under-21s at, uh, uh, with Wales. I was, I was the first person to score against England, um, I scored three against England in two games and it kind of like the momentum was building. I could feel that I was then captain in the 21s and then thought I will get my chance. Everyone at the club was always positive about, you know, I will get my chance. And, um, yeah, that, that season after, uh, I had a really good back end of the season, uh, missed out on the, on getting promoted and then, yeah, played, played pretty much, uh, most of the games that season and yeah, learned a lot, um, it it was really good. Yeah, I'll probably say I peaked at <laughs> twenty.
1: I probably peaked at uh, 13, so I don't feel too bad about it. <laughs> I think
0: my Sunday league career is still yet to peak, still holding out for a bit of hope. But you know, one day maybe. But um um you look, Kaitel mentioned it, Simon. That um oh nine ten season obviously was a personal, personally a great one for you. But obviously for the next two seasons, you'd play a really big part in the reading team. Um, especially actually in the year where they would get promoted again back up to the Premier League so my question for you is it's probably a not the best topic for you but obviously Reading went up you've been a big part of the team but then um, you didn't really get the opportunity to play in the Premier League for Reading so how much of a was, was it a shock for you when they kind of sent you out on loan to Huddersfield or was it something that the manager had kind of um sort of warned you about in the summer was likely to happen?
2: No no definitely not in the summer I mean yeah, it was, it was difficult. I always felt like um, the season after that, that first season, um, I, I didn't have a great season. There was loads of stuff that I kind of had to deal with um, on a personal level, which I didn't really tell anyone about. And it did affect me. And I think, yeah, that's, that season where we, we got promoted, uh, I was starting to become, you know, I was playing regularly for Wales. Uh, I was starting a pretty much every game. And yeah, sometimes you feel when you come through the academy, you get treated differently to people that get brought in. And that's just, that's just football. You, you have to get on with that. But I thought off the back of some of the performances, some of, some of the goals I scored, um, I certainly deserved a, a chance to play in the Premier League after being at the club for so long and, and being a part of it. And in the summer, I had a good pre-season. Uh, I was probably a top goal-scorer in pre-season. And it all came down to kind of politics and um maybe it was a bit naive from my front as well. Um, but I think I I deserved more of an opportunity. Um, I did get shipped into the uh to the reserves and the under 18s because of politics really, rather than performance or anything else. And I th- I know that myself, and it's difficult to kind of admit that because I think. If I look back over my career, what's the one resentment I have? And that's not playing in the Premier League where I feel like I probably deserve. Maybe I'm not going to tear the Premier League up, but I felt like, you know, that's one thing that I can look back and say I've played in the Premier League. Um, but yeah, it it was what it was. Um took me a bit of time to to be allowed to go out alone. And to be honest, my head, my head was all over the place. I had an awful loan at Huddersfield, hated it and um, come back, wasn't in the 25, could have gone somewhere else, didn't happen, and then, yeah, unfortunately, after being at the club and having so many good memories, it kind of ended on such a downer, but, you know what, that's that's football, unfortunately, I had to learn that quite early, and, you know, no one owes you anything in the game, they say about loyalty, and, no, I don't want to come across bitter at all, because I had some amazing times, and, you know, read in such a good club, but, kind of open my eyes up to the to the other side of football and when I was saying earlier about the realization of what football is and being a professional footballer and yes you have an amazing moments that you won't experience outside of it or off the, the the experience that I had on the pitch I cannot mimic anywhere else in in life apart from you know my children but again that's it, it's it's different but yeah there's certainly a lot of things that you kind of have to have to deal with that, that people won't appreciate too much. And even if they do think it, they'll say, well, you're on this amount of money, you're, you're a professional footballer, how can you be so negative about it? It's not even negative. It's, it's something that, you know, you've worked your whole life for, you dedicate dedicated your whole life for, and you just want to play on the weekend. And the Premier League's the pinnacle. And if that gets taken away from you, it's, it's disappointing. But, yeah, definitely, uh, it was definitely an experience for sure.
1: Well, Speaking of an, another pinnacle that you managed to, to reach quite early in your career, uh, we're going to chat a bit about your international ca- career for Wales, who you qualify for uh, through your Welsh grandparents, uh, I reckon. And uh, you got your first call up to the Wales senior squad in May 2009. So chronologically, we're kind of going back uh, before a little bit of the success that you had uh, with the Reading first team, uh, because at the time I think you would have been on loan at Leighton Orient who the internet tells me that you joined on, on my 15th birthday, but I, I'm definitely digressing quite a lot right now. <laughs> um, at, at the time, um, Simon, uh, were you expecting the call-up from the, from the Wales point at this point, you know, kind of point in your career? Because you'd been tearing it up for the under-21s and captaining, as, as you've mentioned, but from your club football kind of uh, career at, at, at that point, was it a bit of a surprise to be, yeah, called up to the Wales national team, the senior squad?
2: Um. It it was that early, to be honest. Uh, I'll never forget. I received the letter from John Toshek. So John Toshek never had a mobile phone or anything like that. So I wasn't expecting it. I heard maybe you know if I carried on going, I might get an opportunity of of breaking through at some stage because some of the other players in the twenty ones were playing and they broke in. So I wasn't. I I was half expecting it, but they got a letter through saying, you know, we want to join. Played 45 minutes, I think, against Estonia. And then what I think i I'm really impressed in training. And I was really impressed with Reading. And I just started playing a lot of games. And, yeah, absolutely love playing for Wales. It was such... Uh, international football was something I dream, dreamt of. And it sounds a bit cringy and cliche, but when you're playing international football, it's just on a totally different different level you're playing against the best players in the best stadiums, you know, for your country. It's it's incredible.
1: How early on did the dream of playing international football become focused on playing that football for for Wales, as opposed to England, who, um, you know, at a young age you still would have been in contention to at the very least kind of be competing for spots at the on the youth teams?
2: Yeah, I think well, my grandparents, especially my my granddad who um who passed away probably a couple of years before I got I got he's a real passionate Welshman and at the time I got approached by Wells and you know my dad he's kind of half Welsh but he's, he's more Welsh because of his his dad and his mum so yeah it was kind of like a, a no-brainer really for, for me um I, you know I absolutely loved it, it was, I would have loved to have done it and you know, before my dad passed, my dad passed it, at the age of 20. He was able to see me play for well. So, again, that was kind of a, a big a big thing, quite a big deal for, for us as a family and, and for me personally. So, yeah, that, that was kind of the factors be, behind making the decision as, as early as I did.
1: And you managed to do it at such a young age, which is, is very impressive. But just kind of you got that letter from, from Toshek. Um, was it? Um, I don't know if it would have been handwritten or maybe emailed and, and signed off, but either way, just kind of walk us through some of the emotions and thoughts and feelings that you had and in the early days of joining up with the senior squad. You know, you're training with the likes, I'm assuming, of Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey, probably Craig Bellamy and some other great names too. What was that like?
2: Yeah, it was daunting. I'm not going to lie. It was, you know... I've made within those within yeah probably about six months of playing for Leighton Orient, doing well, not knowing which way my career was going to go. Um, I was starting regularly for Reading, getting called up uh, for for Wales consistently, and like you said, I'm playing with up front with with Bellamy, who I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie, shit myself every time I played with him because his intensity and desire to win just kind of opened my eyes up and people don't realise how hard he trained um, and just to have, play against him, someone who I watched growing up and, you know, there's no, not just that, the senior players, Gabadon, Earnshaw, James Collins, we had some really good Premier League players that were playing week in, week out and I think for me, that's, that's where I wanted to put myself was amongst the best and then obviously Gareth kind of turned into what he turned into and, you know, as I mentioned before, the levels of playing international football compared to the Championship or the Premier League, it's, it just brings your level up even more because you feel like, right, this is the biggest stage. I've got out my game. If I don't out my game, then, um, yeah, I'm going to be out of it. I'm going to lose the, the kind of taste for it. And we always knew eventually we, we'd get a chance of playing in a, in a major tournament.
0: Well, it's good you mentioned a major tournament because there was a major... Um tournament you were a part of for Wales and it just happened to be Euro 2016 obviously an absolutely well incredible tournament from a Welsh perspective you got to the semi-final I know you actually you played about half an hour in that semi-final against the eventual winners um, Portugal of course and came on against Russia as well and obviously as Kai mentioned before you know the likes of Bale and Ramsey win that team Joe Allen as well some really quality players but how how important was um the manager Chris Coleman throughout that whole tournament? Did he did he really kind of set the tone and create the um the morale that really led to that success? What yeah, what do you put down that fantastic campaign to? Given you were there and part of it,
2: I think it was. I think it came from you know a, young, a number of years building up um, to this kind of stage. We all the core of the team had all played together for a long time. We grew up playing together. And everything just clicked. Um, we actually started off not, not great in the campaign. And um, we missed out on a couple of campaigns before, but we could feel we were edging ourselves closer and closer. And for whatever reason, we just we just clicked. We clicked with the fans. We started building momentum. We weren't singing and dancing about we are going to go and do this and do that. We just got on with our business. And I think, yeah, Chris Coleman and his staff created kind of a, a culture where... Previously, people were dropping out if they had little niggles and things like that, but we didn't want to miss out. We wanted to be part of it. We always wanted to play. We always wanted to be involved. And I've never seen a squad so supportive when you're not playing. So if you're not playing, the squad was the squad and he created that. I think he created that for his man management. I would have run for a brick wall for him, just how, how he was as a man manager um you know he was great he understood it as a player he could have a laugh and a joke he could let you do things but at the same time he'd give you a in, and he, he wouldn't let you get away with things that, that maybe you shouldn't have and it just created a kind of like this group that we had was the best group that I've ever played with and that that's saying a lot because we had such a good group at Reading when we won the league but the well the Welsh team would be part of that setup in the in the Um, because we were away for seven weeks people forget that we're locked in a a hotel for near enough seven weeks where we don't see our family too much and it was just one of the best times of my life it was just incredible to as I go back and say like when I was younger I dreamed of playing in you know the Euros or the World Cup something we've all watch growing up and to be there and just the whole setup, and the travel and the games and everything it was just incredible to be part of and Chris Coleman said to me at the beginning you you will get your chance like because of how you, loyal you've been to me over the years you will get your chance to play in the Euros I believed him straight away sometimes I don't believe managers when they say stuff because most of the time it's just waffle. but I believed him and yeah it stuck me on for the Russia game and then Obviously, in the the semi-finals, we chosen the game, and yeah, just got to run about a little bit.
1: Sometimes that's the way uh, the the cookie crumbles. That's a bad joke about Chris Coleman's uh, nickname. But uh, <laughs> on, a, on another uh, note, still kind of uh, trivial matters. Did you manage to get any rounds in with um with Baylo and, and Bellamy, two keen golfers?
2: Uh, yeah, we used to play golf quite a bit, um, so we'd always we'd always try and when we have a bit of downtime because the international weeks are normally 10, 10 days to two weeks. So it's quite intense. We're all together all the time. So probably one afternoon, uh, throughout the whole trip, we'd always have golf and get in there. And yeah, we've got some good golfers in the, uh, in the group. I love golf myself personally. So yeah, we, we used to love that. And when we were in the Euros, we we did it as well in Denard. I think it was again, just, just had some good times.
1: It sounds like a fantastic experience, the whole thing. And obviously on the pitch, there was a lot of uh, success and a lot for uh, the nation of Wales to, to cheer about along along the way. So speaking of tournaments and, and Wales, looking forward to this World Cup coming up, just briefly, what do you make of, of Wales' chances in Qatar? Is this kind of team equipped to have as much success as the nation saw in 2016, albeit you know, the difference between the World Cup and the Euros? Or was that 2016 squad kind of the, the peak of, this current football generation's talents? Without being
2: biased, it's, it's obviously going to be a peak But, um, <laughs> I mean, they did really well, to be fair, to get to the Euros um, the following campaign and to get to where they got to. Um, you know, and now they're, they're going to the World Cup, first time in, I can't remember how many years, since 60-something. And, yeah, what, what an incredible opportunity. I mean... For us when we went to the Euros we were underdogs there was no pressure there was no expectation on us and I think that's the same going into the World Cup and I think that's a good place to be especially for the guys because there's guys in that changing room that were part of 2016 and they can bring that kind of passion and experience of, of doing well in major tournaments and yeah unfortunately it's not going to be the same atmosphere and they didn't have it the last time through the Euros because of, you know, all the stuff that was going on. And I guess it's going to be so kind of similar. The, the atmospheres aren't going to be the same as, as what it was in, in France, but playing in the World Cup, I, I don't think it's going to take too much for the boys to get to get up for it and the nation. And, you know, playing in front of the fans... I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff and uh, the fans singing before the game. It's honestly, it's it's incredible.
1: Yeah, if there's any group of travelling fans that can kind of rouse the the spirits and the morale of of, of a team, it's it's going to be the Welsh fans. Um, yeah, they've shown it through across every sport. To be to be fair, that they they follow, they're they're very passionate supporters, and I can only imagine. Yeah, the thrill that you get sort of playing in front of of thousands and thousands of them. Um, Onto your later club career now, moving away from from Wales, Simon. And after a few seasons in the championship with Charlton and MK Dons and then some shorter stints at a few other teams, you would have had to make the tough and probably at that age, quite an unexpected decision to retire at 29 because of a recurring hip injury. So in those final years of your playing career, what sort of impact was the, the hip injury directly having on your performances on the pitch? Or did it kind of come on all of a sudden and then quite quickly afterwards, it was game over
2: no it's something i've always had kind of had to deal with and it progressively got got worse and worse probably at the age of 22 23 i started feeling you know really bad after after games i was stiffer than you know an ikea wardrobe most most times and it was a problem i kind of had to use like just get on with i never used them to train in um, just load me up with a load of pills and get on with it. And as I said, it got progressively worse to the point where I'll never forget. We're playing. Who are we playing against? Northern Ireland in uh, the Euros. And he told me to warm up. And it's at the Park the Prince. I think it was a game before the quarters. it told me to warm up, and I'm like limping on the side. I'm thinking, please don't stick me on because my hip is like. I'm gonna look awful. And then, yeah, after that campaign, um, I went to Holland and we started training on AstroTurf pitch and their ground was, was AstroTurf and it just absolutely ruined me. I, just kicked, I, I played against Feyenoord and 20, before the game, the physio, like I always used to get kind of like try and loosen up my hips and I had a routine, worked really hard and trying to stay <laughs> supple. I just couldn't, and he he tried moving my hip before the game. He was like, "What the fuck is this?" Like he was like, well, "I couldn't move," and within 20 minutes, I can remember I, sh- I had a shot, and it I, it obviously went over, and I just fell to the ground. And I just couldn't get up. I was like, "My, I don't know what I don't know what I'm doing." And um, yes, I had had quite. Uh, quite serious operation on my hip to try and stimulate something but I was just chasing the dream after that and yeah it was difficult it was difficult because my my head was telling me to do stuff and my body would just wouldn't allow me to do it and I was always breaking down with injuries and luckily enough the surgeon the surgeon turned around and said like I'd advise you not to not to play anymore if you want you know a decent quality of life you know children and all this kind of stuff and Yeah, it's the worst news I've ever kind of had, but it was kind of a relief at the same time as well for my my body because I would have carried on trying as as much as I could.
0: Yeah, I imagine that must be so difficult. Like you said, obviously, there's the dream of being a footballer and you want to continue, but ultimately you don't want to do too much harm to your body. And at least kind of you had had a really, you know, a lot of fantastic things happen in your career. Um, So at least you could sort of retire with your head held high. But um, you just mentioned now that brief stint um, in the Netherlands playing for Rhoda and JC. And obviously that didn't sound too great training on the AstroTurf and kind of, yeah, the injuries you had, but obviously um, playing in the Eredivisie, albeit for a, a short spell, what, what was that experience like given, uh, you know, you played for Wales, they have very passionate supporters. The Dutch fans are known obviously for also really loving the game and generating a lot of atmosphere. How, how did the, um, the Eredivisie compare to the Football League?
2: Well, I think, yeah, it comes to the stage where after the Euros, MK, I had to leave MK Don's anyway, because um, they got relegated to League One off the back of the Euros. I wanted kind of a new challenge. I was sick of the championship. I was sick of like English football. And I had a few offers from, from abroad, which didn't really materialise. And I knew the coach at Rover. And I thought Eredivisie, you know, if you score goals as a striker, it's a great platform. And I didn't really know too much about the league. Um, but once I got there, we played, who did we play against? Fire PSV, I can't remember the other two, Willem Square or something. And um, playing at PSV, playing at Fire I was like, okay, I can see, I can see the pull. But the quality was really, really good. Really good. It was different tempo, different style of, of playing, which I, I probably suited as well. I, I enjoyed it. It was a lot more possession-based, it was a, a lot more tactical. Um, it was such a, I think was four, four or five games in and that was my season done. So I never really got the chance to get going. I was learning the language. Well, my family hated it there, but I, I didn't mind it. Um, but yeah, it was just a new experience. I wanted to experience playing abroad because again, playing in the championship is, most of the boys would turn around and say they hate playing in the championship because it's constant. And it is like a grind. It's a grind. Like people think, how can you say that? But Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, and your body's an absolute mess. So I just wanted to kind of, yeah, a new experience. And um, I'm glad I went. Just unfortunately, uh, I didn't really get to make the most of it.
1: Just dwelling on your experience in the Netherlands um, before we move on, I've got a quick kind of this or that. Um, Dutch delicacies versus british delicacies which you prefer um maybe you've, you've had the chance to sample them during your time in, in, in holland so first one up is going to be english beer or dutch beer dutch beer okay that was a strong confident dutch beer so one nil to the netherlands right now yeah. against the yeah. uk um have you come across waffles? yeah 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 okay absolutely. so we're going with uh sounds like you like you might like them we're going with waffles or scones or scones however you prefer um, waffles
2: blow them out
1: okay <laughs> yeah so two nil to the netherlands sticking with food right now i think they put definitely in in belgium and i think in the netherlands too quite big on mayonnaise on on the fries so we're we going for mayo or or ketchup
2: ketchup for me
1: okay the <laughs> uk have, pulled one back two one And then, uh, just last off, again, kind of, I think, notorious with regards to the city of Amsterdam, where you weren't necessarily playing your football. But who knows if this kind of bleeds into the the wider culture of of, of life in uh, the Netherlands? Public transport would be the UK, or cycling would be the Netherlands. Cycling. Okay, so quite a a bit of a route um, for the Netherlands here. (laughs) You (laughs) know what? I I lived in uh, Maastricht. Which was such a
2: nice city, like clean, tidy, food was great, people were great. I absolutely loved it. It was just a shame I didn't really get to experience it to its fullest. So it was just the driving and the, and the, uh, the language. I just couldn't get my head around it. They've got like five words for the same word, and it's just
1: uh, mind blowing. Yeah, it's a lot of sh sh sounds from what I kind of have heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: A, a, a bizarre language a fantastic one but a bizarre one but yeah um i guess we'll move on now um to kind of a bit of what you've done simon sort of beyond football I mean, i guess it's very loosely related to the netherlands obviously you've got a cbd company cannabis is big out in amsterdam but in all seriousness i know that um cbd performance which is something um I think you started it with someone you met on a podcast so we can discuss our business idea after this but um I know one of the things that you're looking well one of the sort of missions of the company is to kind of get rid of this stigma behind CBD especially within the context of sports um and I know with your products there's the thing where um the THC is not in it the psychoactive part of cannabis and that's all very important but um how um how do you feel at the moment about sort of the general reaction in sport to cbd products are you seeing a lot of positive reactions to to what you're doing or is it is there still kind of is there still a, a way to go before it's kind of universally accepted in the world of football and beyond
2: yeah there's a there's a huge stigma around it still i mean we're getting a lot better than when i started um i mean i, I kind of found it uh yes there's no tie to being in holland obviously (laughs) (laughs) i I I used to come down from my apartment and there just used to be cafes everywhere um but yeah the 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 whole reason why i got into this or researched it there was a hell of a lot of research there's a hell of a lot of kind of science behind why I, i started it and i was addicted to painkillers sleeping tablets and most professional athletes are And it's not spoken about enough. It's kind of brushed under the carpet because it's a quick win. No one cares. No one cares about the effects. It's literally take that, shut up and be ready for tomorrow because you've got to play, you've got to train. And that was, that's that's kind of well it's general life as well most people do the same it's like a quick wing I'll block it out try and get some sleep or I'll try and block that pain and I'll move on with it and got to the stage where I was addicted I was, it was having such adverse effects on my body where and my hip I had to recover from um I was coming towards the end of uh, my career but I was in so much pain like I would get home and I'd be like I couldn't get out of the car I couldn't go stairs. so I had to try and find an alternative uh, kind of way, and CBD came off the anti doping list, so I looked into it a lot. But at the, at the time, it was just kind of a, a niche one tincture kind of oil. Tried it, had a massive, massive positive effect on me. Uh, I was able to sleep, I was able to wean off any kind of pharmaceutical stuff, and yeah, we saw a huge gap in the market. Um, for this, and yeah, going back to your, your actual question was. It's been, there's a lot of demand for it. Um, The problem we've got, and we've got a lot of professional athletes taking it. We do our very best to kind of batch test everything, make sure we're transparent with everything. And we've had so much positive feedback from it. Um, But the regulators and everyone like that, again, it comes down to politics, comes down to politics and money. We've got our products tested with the, the main doping agency. They won't endorse it though. So it's passed all the testing, but they won't endorse it. And that's a problem where we're at with sport in general, really, that, you know, it doesn't get spoken about. We are effectively drug addicts as athletes because we have to have these stuff to pacify us. And when it becomes negative on your body because you've taken it so long, no one cares. You're already gone. You're out of there. And that's why people turn to alcohol. All this kind of stuff to try and mask these these different issues Ooh.
1: yeah I was just gonna kind of fumbling around uh, for my cbd um kind of spread that's like a topical kind of kind of ointment oh, for aches nice. and pains so i'm definitely a sub- subscriber to to cbd and some other chemicals too but um uh can definitely uh yeah vouch for uh, for cbd and, and the medicinal effects um that it, that it does have on my body i can i can claim um but just a question for you, I think before we wrap this up, Simon. And as a footballer-turned entrepreneur, do you find that other players, for instance, who are building brands uh, away from the pitch, whether or not they're still playing or ha- have retired, are maybe as, as passionate about um their business and for instance with you, C B D a- as you are? Or do you think that a lot of players, for instance, might just be kind of attaching their name to somebody else's product or somebody else's passion in order to secure another source of income?
2: yeah and I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all i think uh, a huge thing for athletes is we have such a small window of opportunity of earning potential and people forget you know we have to sacrifice so much to to kind of make it into that window you know we don't have any qualifications we normally don't have any other interest in anything else apart from being a footballer and unfortunately to to get to that level, you have, you have to make those sacrifices and you have to be that dedicated. But there's not enough conversation around, you know, the, the transition from being an athlete to, you know, it's, it's near enough frowned upon when other players have got businesses because if you have a poor cool performance, people say, well, stop spending so much time in your business. But that's absolute bollocks because what, what do you expect a player to do when they come home from training or after a game? they've got an opportunity to build a brand and a lot of players don't realise, you know, they've got a great platform. They have, you know, good resources, a great network of people and yeah, just getting that kind of changing that idea of, and the mentality of, you know, you've got so long where you're resting at home, not doing anything, build something for your future. Because like me, I went at 29, I didn't plan me to retire at 29 but there's so many people that have fallen out of the game now I've got friends now at 32 33 they can't get club they're club premier league and champions league and they kind of have to think right I've got to take the early step to think I've got to move into something else and yeah whether you're moving into a career or something like that you can always learn to do something or build a business or whatever there's so much resources and opportunity out there I think we've just got to change the mentality to kind of start searching for it
1: and and on that note you know inherently from the outside you can only assume that all footballers are very driven people with the amount of time um, and dedication that they have to put in on the training pitch over years and years and years to just have the opportunity to maybe go pro who knows if it will even work out Um, but going through what you've gone through having to deal with injuries having your professional playing career the end of it kind of taken away from you on some levels, are you at all kind of glass half full, thankful for not having your head so far down the just football is life kind of hole and having other interests and other things that you can devote your time and attention towards?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it was a bit of a blessing that I always had kind of an interest in something else, an interest in stuff outside of it. I wish I'd started earlier. Um, and I think a lot of people say the same. And also, it's the realization of how difficult it is to make that transition because not only if you have a focus on it and everything else, you can see why the statistics are so high for you know divorce, gambling, alcoholism, like all this kind of stuff, uh, bankruptcy, because we just don't have a clue about you know coming out of a routine where you're told where to be, what to eat, where you know whatever it's just basically from the age of 16 all the way through to retire you know what you're doing and you know you get financial advisors all this kind of stuff but you can't trust anyone these days at the end of the day you've got to take responsibility for yourself and I think things are starting to change now slightly but yeah the conversations aren't aren't frequent or or kind of enough um there's certainly different things in, in place now that that people are trying to kind of promote these things to just change that mentality a little bit just have a little think about what else is out there
0: well it certainly feels like sort of the narrative is changing I know a lot of, a lot of footballers are sort of starting businesses and certainly I think you know looking for, people should be you know Celebrating the fact but was doing it rather than not doing it. But yeah, obviously, we wish you the best with CBD performance. And yeah, hopefully, it outsells um, How Robson Carney's Turmeric Co product, another kind of a product from a former teammate of yours and that's probably a fun little battle you have going there but um I feel like that's um a fun time to end the podcast um as always a big thank you to my co-host Kai Tell or not but not thank you for wearing that sporting Lisbon top that, um that still hurts a bit Kai but um from the both of us a very special thank you to Simon Um it's been really great chatting to you and um, we really appreciate you joining us this evening and um whenever we have a guest on Simon we always give them the chance to um Kind of just tell our listeners the best way um, they can keep up to date with everything you're doing, both personally and, I guess, business-related too.
2: Yeah, probably best to have a look at um, rubbish at social media. Honestly, our absolute dinosaur. Um, but, yeah, any kind of social stuff, obviously the business, if You want to try our products, uh, have a look at cvdperformance.com. But, yeah, um, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Enjoyed it.
1: An absolute pleasure, Simon. Thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you um, about football and about your life since um, as an entrepreneur and um, with regards, yeah, in particular to CBD that I think is on the up and kind of hopefully is only a matter of time before um, clubs as, a, as an agent kind of like individually can um, be openly uh, collaborating with, for instance, your, your business and kind of uh, providing CBD supplements to their players on a daily basis and kind of making it part of the recovery um, routine because it's got a lot of um, medicinal benefits. Um, so best of luck with that. Uh, for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe wherever it is that you like to stream your favorite podcasts. Just search for United Mates Football Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at FP. If you feel like putting some faces to these voices, then you can find us on YouTube. Look for United Mates Football Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe while you're at it. And then for all of that content and more in one place, check out our website, UnitedMatesFP.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.